So are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Just checking. What a great uh, truth to sing and a great truth to live by. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about an issue that I mentioned I was going to address sometime in our study in the book of Joshua. And so if you... uh, (coughs) I'm actually not going to be specifically uh, addressing, there'll be some scripture we look at, but I'm not going to be specifically addressing any specific passage in the book of Joshua. But what I am going to be addressing is uh, what we are now entering into as the conquest of Canaan. Some time ago, there was a a caption, like a cartoon type caption, and there's a picture of Jericho. And I want you to picture this. And there's Jericho, the walls have just fallen down. All of the armies of Israel have their swords drawn. You can see the faces of terror on the people of Jericho. You can see little children clutching to their mother's aprons and people with terrified looks in their eyes and the caption on the, on the picture says, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Now, I tell you that story <coughs> because I think that picture, and whoever put it in there, was, was raising the question of a sometimes, and for a lot of people, apparent discrepancy between the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Someone has said uh, the most important thing about you, I think it was Tozer that said the most important thing about you is what you believe about the character of God. And so I would like to talk to this issue with you and address it as we you know, enter this stage in the book of Joshua with the conquest of Canaan. So we people get saved and they they come to know Christ and they realize that he is patient and kind and merciful and forgiving, extremely forgiving. And for some people, they, this is like the first time they, they see God in a new way. They've seen God from a pulpit-pounding, red-faced preacher condemning them to hell or some other picture of God as a cosmic policeman and, and now perhaps for the first time they, they see a new picture of God as a, as a loving father who rushes out to meet the prodigal son. You read the story of the high priest who got his ear lopped off in the garden and Jesus heals it and says, no more of this, put your swords away. We read things like turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. And Jesus said, you know, if you show mercy, you will prove to be children of my father, because that's how my father is, a merciful God. You see Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They, they know not what they do. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And, and we see him there on his hands and knees washing even the feet of Judas. In John 3.16, we, we know that passage, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For 
Son of Man came into the world not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but to save it. We read in John 3, 16 and 17. We wear bracelets that say, you know, what would, what would Jesus do? And somehow we have a hard time picturing him leading the charge into Jericho to sever, to sever the bodies of little children. Do you have a hard time picturing that? And yet, you know, who is this man? Who is this commander of the Lord's armies that was there to fight this battle? Who actually fought this battle? Who was that? You know, we just talked a few weeks ago. That was Christ. Christ is leading the charge into Jericho. And so how do we, how do we put this together? This conquest of Jericho is to be one of over 30 nations that would be slaughtered and, and destroyed as they went through the land of Canaan. And so then we, we start reading the, uh, the Old Testament. And, you know, we hear words of David about he's, you know, praying that the babies of his enemies, that their heads would be dashed against the stones. And, and we read of, you know, we're only... We're not very far in here, and we've got the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, and we read about the law and its incredibly severe punishment for those who sin. You know, now if a, if a young couple has a baby out of wedlock, we, we give them a baby shower. Back then, they would stone them to death. That was the law. And so people began to, to read through this, and somehow the God of the New Testament doesn't seem to match up with the God of the Old Testament. Atheists reflect on this. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, says, writes of God that he is a racist, infanticidal, genocidal, apricotially malevolent, malevolent bully. <clears throat> and he goes on, that's just part of the quote. Interesting how you can criticize a God who doesn't exist. Or use moral language when there is no God of morality. But <clears throat> the point is, people see some, some discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And so we have three options that we can do. One is to say that the Old Testament reflects one side of God and the New Testament reflects a very different side of God. Or we can just reject one and say, you know what, the God of the Old Testament is, is not the God that, that you know, we, we serve. We can pick which God we want. So if you're a hippie, you can pick the God of the New Testament. If you're a jihadist, you can pick the God of the Old Testament. <coughs> Which, by the way, is the basis for what they do. The annihilation of those who are apart from the faith. Or, option three, we can take a new look at how we see God as revealed in both the Old and in Christ in the New Testament. So my, my stance this morning is that, that God has really not changed at all that the display of God's character 
are, are not in conflict. If we read carefully the Old Testament and the New Testament, we will see that there, there is no conflict in terms of the character of God. And so in the time we have left here, I, I would like to make that point with you and give you something to ponder. I believe both of these qualities of God are true and that we find them really equally in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, number one, here's two points about, about God this morning. Here's the first one. God is a God who will judge and punish. He is a God of complete, absolute justice. He will not let one single thing pass without being judged because he is absolutely perfect in justice. So we see in the Old Testament, only six chapters in, God destroys everything on the earth. Everything except for one family and two of each kind of animal. Everything else is wiped off the face of the earth. So very early on, we see God is a God of judgment. In 2 Peter, he's talking to, by the way, this is in the New Testament. We'll just, we'll just jump here for a moment out of the old. But in the New Testament, uh, Peter is writing to those who are basically kind of living life just following their own desires and their own wills and not giving any consideration to the God who created them. And Peter is writing and he says, and these are the ones, by the way, that are scoffing and saying, you know, where's, where's this return of God that you keep talking about? And uh, Peter writes, he says, you know what? They, uh, they deliberately forgot couple of things. One of them, he says, uh, they, they don't forget this, he says, with the Lord, uh, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And he says, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He, and he writes that there are basically two things that have, have been forgotten here. Here's the first one says, don't forget that everything, everything there is, was destroyed. Everything was destroyed. They will say, where is this coming? Ever since our father died, things go on since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed. So number one, God spoke the word and everything came into being. <coughs> That's the first thing they're, they're, they're deliberately not remembering. Secondly is what they deliberately are not remembering is that he says they deliberately forgot by his word the heavens existed and the earth was formed. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And so they forgot that God's judgment has been manifest in the flood. We see in the Old Testament, jumping back, the Old Testament law, we see the punishment allotted to each one of these offenses. And we see that, that, that God does not ignore sin, that God cannot ignore sin, that he is a God who is a judge, he is a God of justice. And we have here the story of Canaan, which is, of course, another example of God's judgment 
and justice coming. God will use Israel to destroy the nations of Canaan. So one might ask, so why don't we find this in the stories of Jesus then, in the life of Jesus? Well, I would suggest to you that we do. I would suggest that we find the, the judgment of God and the violence of God very present as well in the New Testament. We see here, Jesus is very clear. He uh, was constantly warning people about the realities of judgment. He told the parable of the pounds. He told the parable of the talents. He told the parable of the vineyard. He told the parable of the ten virgins. And in every one of those at the end, he gave stern warning about the judgment that would come on those who were not prepared, for those who were not ready. And then we get to the book of Revelation, and we see that, that the revelation of God is and of Jesus Christ, by the way, don't forget this, is, is not yet complete. It will take two comings, two comings of Christ to the earth to fully reveal his character. In fact, here's some interesting stats. References to Christ's second coming outnumber his references to his first coming eight to one. There are eight times as many references to the second coming of Christ than to the first coming of Christ. 1,845 references to the second coming of Christ. 70% of the chapters in the New Testament reference the second coming of Christ. Jesus talks about it 21 times. And so why is this important? It's, be, it's important because if you want a full revelation of God through Jesus, who is the full revelation of God, then you need to keep in mind both comings. So Jesus said two things about himself. We already read in John 3, 16 and 17 that he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. First time. Let me add that in parentheses. I didn't come the first time to judge the world. I came to save the world. I didn't come to condemn it. I've come to save it. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So just because Jesus didn't come to condemn people doesn't mean they were not under condemnation. That, is not, that was not his role in the first coming. However, we just jump ahead uh, two chapters in the book of John and, and listen to what Jesus says. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to who? To the Son. So, Jesus came into the world the first time not to condemn the world, to save it. When Jesus comes the second time, he's not coming to save it. He's coming to condemn and to bring judgment. And he will come as one of judgment. First time, he comes in swaddling clothes. Second time, he comes with a robe dipped in blood. First time, he comes with cattle and shepherds around him. Second time he comes, it'll be with all the army hosts of heaven surrounding him. The first time he comes as a lamb, the second time he comes as a lion. 
The first time, he comes with the criny, tiny cry of a baby. The second time, his voice will be like the thunders of many waters. I remember standing. Any of you been to Niagara Falls? I remember standing at Niagara Falls. You have to yell to talk. It's so loud. And there is, I can't tell you how much power and force and weight there is in the sound of those waters. But you just know that if you fell in there, it would absolutely crush you. This is the one, this is the one who will return as revealed in the book of Revelation. And so I would say to you, I don't think there's any contradiction in the Bible in terms of God's character that he is a God of judgment. You'll find it very clearly in the Old Testament and you'll find it very clearly in the New Testament as well. You know, Jesus said, you know, some someone who causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better. It would be better for them if what? A millstone were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. It doesn't sound like someone who, who doesn't realize the reality of judgment. Uh, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he's weeping over Jerusalem because he says, you know what? Judgment is going to come upon you because you've rejected me. And that was an incredible talk about a horrific scene that took place when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so we see here that, that God, through the Old Testament, God through the New Testament, God is a God of judgment. The second thing we see in both the Old and the New is that God is a God who extends love and mercy. And I would suggest we see that throughout the Old Testament. Some say the oldest book in the Bible, some feel the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Jonah. Now what's Jonah about? Jonah's about a guy who didn't want to go share the good news, the offer of repentance to a group of, of savage type people who had no knowledge of God, very godless people, who didn't want to go and who finally went and, and shared the message and sure enough, uh, they heard the message and, and God blessed this people. Jonah is an example of the unmerited favor of God upon a group of godless people. We see the book of Hosea. I mean, what a profound statement on the mercy and love of God who called this prophet to marry a prostitute who then left him and and and, and she's living with other men and and uh, out there living a life of prostitution and calls him to go back and buy her back to demonstrate the character of God towards his then idolatrous people. Mount Sinai and the golden calf and the people are in the middle of an orgy and, and you know, as, as Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, and yes, there were those who, who died in that plague, but God spared his people in that moment. I mean, even Pharaoh, God gave him nine chances. Nine chances before he took the firstborn in all of Egypt. And even in the story of Canaan, one of the major stories that is highlighted in, in those first six chapters, in fact, there's probably more given to this than just about anything, is the story of Rahab. That God's mercy was there to a Canaanite prostitute who lived in the land. 
So let's just take a look at this judgment that happened in Canaan. This is probably one of the most severe ones. You'll see this coming in and wiping out all of these nations. But God gave us a verse in Genesis for a reason. And when God gives us some information, there's a reason for that information. And so I'd like you to just hear these words from Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. And the Lord said to, he's talking now to Abraham, and the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. Notice how long. 400 years. Why 400 years? Why 400 years? Why so long? But I will punish the nation, which was Canaan. I will punish the nation, they, or excuse me, which is Egypt, I will punish the nation they, they serve as slaves after 400 years of doing that, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In other words, you're not going to get to see that, Abraham. In fact, in, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And why is it going to take four generations? Why all this time? Why all this waiting? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God said, I'm going to show my mercy and my grace to these people for 400 years. In fact, God said, I don't feel justified in light of my character, I don't feel justified to destroy these people, these Amorite people and the other nations in Canaan. It's going to take 400 years for my patience to wear out. And so we see here the, uh, you know, yeah, we see the justice of God, but we see 400 years of God's mercy to these people. You know, God, see thing, God sees things differently than we do. I've done some pottery, and if you ever have a piece of pottery and you get a, a chunk of dried clay in there, hardened clay, and you're trying to work that pot, the more you work it, the worse it gets. And, and you know that you get to a point. You can keep working the pot, but it's not going to get better. And so at that point, you're better off to just cut it off the wheel and put it aside and throw it away. I think sometimes God sees people's lives. He, he saw the nation. He saw the Amorites. He saw what was going on, and he realized the hardness of these people's hearts and the extents of, of their sin. And, and God said, you know what? I'm going to cut them off the wheel and throw them away. I, I mean, God could have just let them live out this life and continue to destroy themselves. But God brings judgment, I believe, sometimes and hastens an inevitable result. There's a second thing here as well. You know, you go, what about these kids? What about little children? What about God who would go in and slay all these children? Well, let me ask you, what was the future of those children? What do you think they would grow up to be? Their parents were involved in witchcraft, 
They were involved in sorcery. They were involved in sensuous nudity. They were involved in sexual acts incorporated throughout the worship. They were involved in child sacrifices, and on and on the list went. In generation, this continued to be passed on. And so as God comes in, perhaps, uh, you know, we might look at it as the slaughter of these little innocent children, but maybe perhaps it was the salvation of these little children from the culture, from the future, from what their parents were passing on to them. And you know, God takes no delight in the acts of judgment. In fact, I go so far to say that God is deeply, deeply grieved every time he has to carry out an act of judgment. You know, I think we can understand this. If you've ever been a parent, and you have your child, I mean, haven't you ever had the feeling that you really want your child to do what you told them to because you don't want to have to come down on them? You just, you just so want them to do what's right because you know you have to discipline them, but you don't want to discipline them. God doesn't delight in, in judgments that come upon people. We know that to be true. And the reason we know that to be true is because God has revealed that about himself. You know, the, we, we read about the flood. Notice what it says. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. And the Lord, listen to this, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. His heart was filled with pain. The heart of God is filled with pain when he has to bring about judgment upon people. In the book of Ezekiel, Chapter 33, verse 11, this is what it says. As surely as I live, declares the Lord. This is like an oath God is saying. Listen to this. As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they would turn from their ways and live. There's no legend, and I've shared this before, but <coughs> for those of you who haven't heard it, there's, a, there's an old rabbi, Jewish legend that said, when, when Israel went across the Red Sea and the waters came in, that, you know, there's this story going on and Egypt is coming down and all the armies of Pharaoh are coming against Israel. And Israel makes it across and the, the armies are there and the waters come in and when they do, all the angels clapped and the God held up his hand and said, I have just destroyed my creation and you would cheer? God takes no delight in judgment. And so we see here that God is a God who delights in mercy and delights in love. Well, let me summarize. My point this morning is I, I don't believe there's any contradiction between the Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. I think one of the reasons we have a problem is, is very much cultural. Our culture's attitude towards sin and the seriousness of it and the consequences of it, you know, have resulted in a, in a makeover of God that fails to see him for who he really is. You know, our culture looks at Old Testament punishments for sins 
And, they, and our culture goes, that's so severe. That's so severe. How could, how could God punish people just for sins? You know, everybody sins, and there's this, there's this attitude. And the point is, sin is incredibly serious. In fact, the New Testament's even more stringent. Paul tells us that if, if you've broken the law once, you're a lawbreaker. Just one thing. The Bible says the wages of sin, the wages of one sin. You know, in the Old Testament, there were certain sins and, and certain things were done. But we find out in the New Testament that the wages of just one sin is death. Any sin doesn't matter what it is. And so we begin to realize that the Old Testament and, and all, of the, all of the law and all of those, you know, severity of the law was intended to show us how serious our sin is and to lead us, as the New Testament teaches, to lead us to Christ. Not to show us a way we can be saved, but sh to show us how we cannot be saved apart the work of Christ. And so minimizing sin only minimizes our world's need for a sense of a Savior. When the church minimizes the seriousness of sin, the church is failing to love the culture in which it lives. And when the church fails to take seriously its own sins within its own walls, it, it dishonors God, it cheapens the work of Christ, and it fails to to truly love its own people by not speaking the truth in love. The Hebrew writer tells us one of the primary reasons why we need to not forsake getting ourselves together is because of <coughs> the temptation that we all have to sin and to stray. One final word <coughs> I want to say. You know, people contrast the Old Testament with the New Testament it is nothing like the brutality, the judgment uh, in the Old Testament like with Cana. There's, there's really nothing <coughs> like that in the New Testament. But I would argue that we have an example in the New Testament even more extreme than that of Cana of old. We have an example in the New Testament of God, of a God who took someone who was completely, absolutely, innocent. Someone who had done no wrong but to love people. And had that person mocked and tortured and beaten so badly he was beyond human recognition. And not just someone but his own son who pled with him in that garden. Daddy, if there's any other way you can do this, please, if there's any other way. And his father said no. And so when Jesus is you know, granting forgiveness to Zacchaeus, he's saying, Father, put that on my tab. And when he, he lifts up the woman caught in adultery and grants that woman forgiveness, He's saying, Father, put that on my path. And we see as Jesus 
you know, <coughs> looks at the woman at the well who's had five husbands and, and grants her forgiveness and she's walking away. He says, Father, put that on my dad. And if Christ had said no to that cross, we would have seen the greatest slaughter of humanity. If we had all been judged instead of Christ on Golgotha Hill, you'd have seen the greatest slaughter in all of history. But all of the judgment of God, all of the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. I think the greatest act of judgment that has ever taken place so don't ask what happened to the God of judgment in the New Testament. He is right there, center stage. The reason we don't see it is because that judgment was poured out on him and not upon us. Father, this morning <coughs> we have shared the elements of this table together. And... Uh, well, at this point, we look back and, and perhaps we realize more fully just how significant this table is. And we are reminded that you are a God of incredible judgment and justice, and you are a God of absolute love and mercy. And in your amazing plan, on that cross, you demonstrated the fullness of your love and mercy, and you demonstrated the fullness of your judgment. In one moment, in one place, in one time, on one hill, and you poured that judgment out upon yourself that we might be saved. Father, thank you for that grace. May we be faithful to share with the world who has not believed and is under, under condemnation and is under the judgment for their sins, Father, might we, might we not shy away from that truth and might we be quick to share the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all who you give us opportunity to. We thank you and we praise you in, in Jesus' name.